We begin today part two of our journey through the book of Acts. Last week we were in verses one to five. Today we pick up in verse six. It says this, So when they had come together, verse six, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? And and you have to understand the passages like Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, well, they were interpreted in nationalistic terms. In Joel 2, it speaks of this general outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel as a mark of the final great messianic day of the Lord, when Israel would be restored to the glory days of David and Solomon. So they're thinking like, man, this is it right here, right now. It's, this has got to be it. They, they knew of no reason the earthly form of the kingdom No reason why it couldn't be set up immediately, since the messianic work signaling the end of the age seems like it's arrived. I mean, Jesus just finished telling them, listen, I want you guys to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come. And they're thinking of that in terms of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Joel 2, and they're like, this is it. Super understandable that they are thinking this way, because after all, they had hoped the arrival of the kingdom was imminent. It's something they've been hoping for since they first started following Jesus. And while the scriptures, they, they teach us a whole lot of things about the earthly reign of Jesus and his kingdom, the one thing it, it doesn't is the precise timing of the establishment. And so they're like, is this it? Is it happening now? Jesus responds, verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. God has by His own authority fixed times and seasons. God by His own authority has determined all the aspects of the future and the kingdom. But as far as men are concerned, well, that remains one of the secret things that belong to the Lord our God that Deuteronomy 29.29 is referring to. All believers can know is that the kingdom will be established at the second coming, Matthew 25.21-34. But the, the timing, that remains unrevealed to us. And Mark 13.32 echoes this. But at the same time, notice... That Jesus here, in his response, like, hey, is this the time? And he's like, hey, it's not for you to know the time. Notice he doesn't deny their expectation of a literal earthly kingdom involving Israel. That's highly significant because it shows that their understanding of the promised kingdom it was correct. Just maybe not so much the timing. Jesus doesn't necessarily, I want to be clear, doesn't necessarily reject the concept of the restoration of Israel Instead, he's going to depoliticize it. And he's going to do this with a call to a worldwide mission. The disciples were to be the true restored Israel, fulfilling its mission to be a light to the Gentiles so that God's salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. And I think what that goes to show us is the need for continual Vigilance, right? Because we don't, we don't know when he's coming back. It, it goes to show us the need for 
continual vigilance and anticipation of all believers through all generations as we eagerly wait for his return and yet all the while living with this urgency and this passion that others might know Jesus in a, in a true and saving way. So, so recap and everything that just took place doesn't deny. He does not deny their expectation of a literal earthly kingdom. Rather, he's just going to depoliticize it with the call to worldwide missions. The disciples are to be the true restored Israel, right? They're thinking, oh, it's going to be like David and Solomon. It's like, no, 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 no. No, you can think a little bit differently. Let me bring it all together, right? You're going to be this restored Israel. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. And this becomes very clear by what he says in the next verse. But you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples were to be the true restored Israel, fulfilling its mission to be a light to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And I imagine in a room today with primarily Gentile audience, that's really good news for us. Okay, that, that, that This is how Jesus was thinking like forward about this stuff. It's great news for us. And he promises them two things here in verse 8. Power and to be his witnesses. Don't miss that. And the power part, without re-preaching last week's sermon on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's this, this verse 8 power is very much tied into the verse 5 promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course you say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. What's that? Well, we talked about that a lot last week. But in short, it's, well... That's the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, are you talking about the way that Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Or are you talking about the way that Luke uses the phrase here in Acts 1, 5 when he quotes Jesus? They're not contradictory. But they are, the, the, the main idea is that this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the way that Luke uses the phrase here, is that it is extraordinary power is going to come upon them for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministry. That's, that's what he's referring in, in the Luke way that he uses the phrase. Not to be confused with the Paul way that he uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in which he seems to be speaking generally of a general conversion of, of knowing Jesus in a saving way. And so the power of verse 8, very much tied to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 that they're told to wait for. And ultimately, this is going to enable them to be more effective witnesses. Two things he promises, power, witness. And it is clear that many Christians in the early church sealed their witnesses to Christ with their very blood. Um, So much so that the, the word witness came to be associated and synonymous with the word martyr. Uh, in, in fact, the, the actual Greek word for witness, it looks almost, sounds all very, very similar. You're like, ooh, that sounds kind of like, like our English word martyr. And, and that's where they have the association. They're often used synonymously. In fact, the second century theologian Tertullian stated it was the blood of the witnesses, the blood of the martyrs during the early church that became the seed of the church. So many people were drawn to faith in Christ by just observing how calmly and joyously that the Christians 
met their deaths. Who, who knowingly goes to their death calmly and joyously, right? But that's, that's the point of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power that Christ promises, right? It is this, in the Luke way, in quoting Jesus, how it's used, this extraordinary power from God for God-ordained Christ-exalting ministry. That's going to enable these disciples to be effective witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the geographical scope of Acts 1-8 provides a rough outline of actually the entire book. Jerusalem, chapters 1-7, to Judea, and Samaria, 8-12, to and the ends of the earth, 13-28. to A lot of people think of Acts 1-8 almost kind of like a theme verse for this book. And I think rightly so. We come to verse 9. And he says this, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking? It's important. What are you saying? Looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here's his ascension. And the angel's question is, why do you stand looking into heaven? And their question indicates more than just curiosity at the miracle. In fact, the word translated looking indicates a long gaze. In this case, looking as if losing someone. And thus, the question seems to be somewhat a mild rebuke for the apostles. Guys, why do you stand there looking? Like, you're not, you're not losing Jesus. You're not, you guys, you don't, you don't even be afraid. You're not losing him. And it also, I think, serves as a compelling motive. Guys, you're not losing him. Guys, he's coming back. No one knows when he will come, but everyone must live in anticipation that it could be in their lifetime, right? He just told you this in verse 7. Of course, the apostles... It, the, the apostles' gaze is understandable, I think, after witnessing this take place. But the angelic rebuke, it's necessary. There are, there are moments of spiritual highs that we encounter as Christians. However, such experiences are never ends in themselves. And for the disciples here, it was time to come down from the mountain, right? I mean, they are watching all this take place. They're like, what is happening, right? It's time to come down from the mountain. It's time to come down and to witness what they had seen. Of course, that's what Jesus told them to do in verse 8. Be my witnesses, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And I would argue, like them... We are called to be witnesses 
Two. You're called to be witnesses as well. And don't get me wrong. You know, the spiritual highs are awesome. It's, it's great if the corporate Sunday gathering that we have here, it's great if it's super uplifting or super encouraging or our Bible reading times during the week or a conference we went to or a sermon or a song that we heard. But hello, hello, it's time to wake up. It's time to be about the work of the witnesses. That's the meaning of the angelic rebuke. It's time to be about that work. And not, of course, on your own strength, but in his power. It is his power, and in his power that he will provide the extraordinary power for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministry. And of course, this power of 1-8 is for them to be an effective witnesses to those in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that's all tied back to 1-5 with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is, all right, how do I do that? What is that like? What does it look like? Furthermore, I mean, you could raise the question, how could Jesus be so sure that the disciples are actually going to do that? You're like, well, he's Jesus. Okay, okay, I got you. But how? How can he be so sure that they're going to be the witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth? And the answer is, because he's going to send... His Holy Spirit upon them with power. But then, why does the coming of the Holy Spirit guarantee that the disciples will press on to the end of the earth? And I think there is only one answer. The Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's all-consuming passion. You don't normally think of maybe the third member of the Trinity of having this all-consuming passion, but I think we see it here, right? What's the, what's the passion of the Holy Spirit? is to exalt Christ to the end of the earth. How, how could Jesus be sure his disciples are going to press, press onward to the very ends of the earth? He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Why does that guarantee that they're going to press on to the ends of the earth? Because the Spirit wants the world for Christ. The Spirit wants the world for Christ. If it were not so, then his coming that is the Holy Spirit's, it would be no guarantee or compelling incentive for them or us to press on to the end of the world. There would be no guarantee if that was the case. But this is the passion of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus can point us with assurance to the ends of the earth with this Christ-exalting witness. And I think at this point we need to remember just a couple really important things. The reason the Holy Spirit has a passion to empower us to the ends of the earth with this witness about Jesus is that God's overarching purpose from the beginning to the end is about glorifying himself in the whole world. That's, that's God's purpose, to make much of himself. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That's it. His, his number one agenda is to make much of him. And this great purpose runs throughout the entire Bible. Like Numbers chapter 14, 21, or Habakkuk 2, 14. We see this purpose running through the Bible, right? But truly, as I live, and as 
all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. What's the purpose from beginning to end? Like That God would be glorified to the world, to the nations. For Joshua 4.24, God brought His people into Canaan so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. From beginning to end in the Bible, God is all about glorifying Himself. The peoples of the world would know this is not any ordinary God. In fact, David commanded us in Psalms 96, 1-3, Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. Isaiah 49, 6, He gives God's word to His servant. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In fact, even in the command in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, the proclamation is to all the nations. And so the first thing I think we've got to remember is that the Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. And this has been the purpose of God from the beginning of creation and will be until the end of the age. And we have to understand this mission is not over yet. We might question, well, why? why? Why is it not over yet? Why does it keep going? But, of course, Jesus answers the question for us in verse 7, right? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed, that the Father has determined by His own authority. And I think that for many of us, we don't always feel the current state of affairs because we don't look beyond our borders. In fact, oftentimes, we don't look beyond our friend groups. Though, to be honest, I feel with the intensifying anti-Christian political climate in America that we are beginning to feel the burn, pun intended. You can laugh. (laughs) And it is. It is. Go back in the last five years, I think that there is a very anti-Christian climate, increasingly so in this country. I think maybe for some of us Christians is making us think about everything. Think about the mission that we're given. But for the most part, the honest, simple fact is the church in America does not always have this sort of wartime mentality when it comes to the sort of verse 8 witness that Jesus speaks of. We don't have a wartime mentality. It's like, we go back to World War II, we draft a million men, and only send 600 over to fight Hitler, and the other 999,400 are just hanging out stateside. We don't have a wartime mentality. I think for many of us Christians, we have an at-home, garrison sort of environment where we're just, you know, hanging out. Relaxing, chillaxing, right? That's it. But we are at war. We are. And I say that so that maybe that sense of urgency begins to turn in your mind. The Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. That goal is not yet reached. And I'm sure some of you guys know this. You have moms and dads and brothers and sisters. You know people, right? Even some of those people, right, who claim to be Christians, but they're not walking with God. They are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And others of them are just flat-out pagan unregenerates who if they died right now, they would go to hell. And yet we just don't have this wartime mentality. We don't have the urgency that we ought to have. 
It should keep us up at night knowing that people are dying and going to hell. That's why I said it's like World War II. We draft a million people, and then we only send like 600 over to actually go fight Hitler and the Nazis. It's like, no, we're going to send them all over, right? Why? Because it's Hitler and the Nazis, right? The, the fate of the free world is at stake. That's why. And, and one of the dangers of different theological perspectives come into play. Whether it's Arminianism, whether it's Calvinism, you have two extremes here. And, and, and we, we, can, we can take one of the frameworks like Arminianism and we can say it, it teaches men to usurp the place of God in conversion. I'm not saying it does. I'm saying that that's the extreme, right? So I'm just going to arm wrestle people into the kingdom, right? I'm literally going to like just tie their hands up. You're going to be a Christian. I'm just going to like convince them, persuade them, and we should, of the truth of God. Um. The problem with that is it's so man-centric, right? There's a reason we're talking about power, needing his power. He says, wait, right? Of course, the other extreme, dangers of Calvinism, is that it leads some people to deny the place of man in evangelism, creating spiritual apathy. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. I don't need to go out and witness, right? Because, uh, well, you know, Jesus is going to get him anyways. And, um, of course whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, like both of these groups love Jesus, great godly people. I'm just saying these are some of the potential, potential dangers of the extremes of both points. Whether you have such an extreme that's so man-centric, I'm literally arm-wrestling someone into the kingdom, or I am almost so apathetic because God's going to save them anyways. And the reason I bring that up is if the book of Acts teaches us anything, it teaches us that the Holy Spirit wills to reach the ends of the earth through us. If the book of Acts teaches us anything, it's that the Holy Spirit wills to reach the ends of the earth through you, sister, through you, brother. Until Christian disciples carry the message of Christ crucified, and risen for the forgiveness of sins to unreached peoples, they will remain in darkness and in rebellion. Uh, Acts 26.18 There is no salvation without the witness of a man or a woman to Jesus Christ. And, and you and I and every other Christian are an indispensable link, link in the chain of redemption. You are. I mean, I can give you tons of examples. In the book of Acts, and we'll see. First one that comes to mind, I don't know, like Acts 8.29, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And this Holy Spirit, this is Acts uh, 8.29, and the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over there to his chariot and talk to him. That's why I said that you and I are an indispensable link in the chain of redemption for examples like that. You know those moments, right? Those moments where you feel that tug. You're like, man, I, I see that person sitting over there by themselves. Or they're not sitting by themselves. Or I just feel like I should talk to them. Oh, I don't want to talk to them, right? I'm thinking of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Holy Spirit's like, Philip, like, get off your butt. Go over to his chariot and talk to him. <laughs> where does that come from? God. Right? Maybe uh, you think 
think twice, right? You think of that story next time that that happens, right? And you're so, like, compelled to just go and open your mouth. So many Christians don't open their mouths, and that's half the problem right there. And, And there strikes at the heart of the balance between the potential weaknesses of both Arminianism and Calvinism. Bottom line, we require power. Folks, we require power. We need power. Of course, that's the problem, right? There's the deficiency. We don't have it. We've got to get it from somewhere. Where do we get it from? Jesus. That's where. And the question then is what does this mean for us practically? Does it mean that we have to feel powerful before we actually obey God's call to missions? Do we we actually have to feel powerful before we obey God's call to be his witnesses? Because I know for many people, many people I talk to, they don't feel that way. They don't feel like they have what it takes. They don't feel like they are in the right season of life to be about the work of God, pouring into others, making disciples, being his witnesses. And I'll say this, if, if you're going to wait until you, you feel it, it'll never happen. It won't. I think this is true whether you're putting together an exercise-like plan you wait till you actually feel motivated to exercise, it won't happen, right? I think the, tr- the same is true, right? If you wait until you feel like, okay, I finally feel confident and powerful enough to actually go and obey Jesus and being his witnesses and making disciples, yeah, it probably won't happen. Jesus, what I've realized is he, he doesn't give us this mission to be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and then caveat that command, something along the lines of, go and do this so long as X, Y, and Z. And yet so many Christians who love God, who love God, create reasons and exceptions to policy that just simply don't exist. They rationalize why they can't obey Christ in this way right now. Because they have kids, because they have grandkids, because they have a a full-time job, because they're retired, because they're in school, because they're in grad school, and on and on and on and on. Once I I get to that next stage of life, or once that happens, or once this happens, right, then, then I can be all on board about the work of God. And, And the problem with that way of thinking, besides the fact, I don't know that it's unbiblical and wrong, just to start with, is that you don't see Jesus give exceptions to policy. Like, like, when was the last time you heard Jesus say, go and make disciples and be my witnesses unless you don't feel like you're ready to? Or, when was the last time you heard Jesus say, go and make disciples and be my witnesses so long as you've got an opening in your schedule? Or, unless you are older, or maybe unless you're more mature, or unless you feel ready. I wasn't joking earlier when I said, like, if you wait until you feel it, like whether it's in the gym or obeying Jesus, it just ain't going to happen. You will be my witnesses, he says. And then we go, we do, 
and we create these exceptions to policy. Like, Jesus doesn't do that. There, there are no exceptions to policy if you're a Christian. That's the whole point. You, you can't. But he can. And how much would it really glorify God if you waited until you felt it, until you felt powerful enough to go and be about the work that he commanded us. Like, how much would that really glorify God? All right, now I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, I just memorized a whole bunch of verses, which you should. Right? Or I just, man, I just was at Passion 2020. I heard Mr. Piper bring the word. Uh, man, that guy is like 75, and he's, he's good. But I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm ready now, right? I feel like spiritually fit, I'm, I'm ready. So that, that literally takes the spotlight, and instead of having it on Jesus, it just puts it on you. Like, I'm the Christian of the year, right? Um, it doesn't glorify God. Like, your weakness and your deficiency, uh, that, that makes much of God. That does. And so he gives us commands to be his witnesses, and his expectation, it's that we obey. It's that we go. And that's understandable, because, I mean, if he's Lord, you really can't tell him no. If you tell him no, is he really your Lord? Just saying. And, and the second problem with this way of thinking, that is, it's the idea that I need to feel it. I need to feel powerful or stronger or whatever before I go, before I speak, before I disciple, before I witness, before I pour into others. That's it. And... Here's the encouragement I'd love to give to you. Is that several times in the book of Acts, the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit just as they are given the opportunity to speak. Like in Acts 4.8, Acts 4.31, 13.9, it's like right when they need it. It's like you're going into a situation, man, I have no idea what I'm going to say. It's like, man, I really need his power. I, I do not feel it. And then it's like, boom, there you are, right? Right before, like, Sanhedrin, right before, like, the, the, the judges. And boom, you're, you open your mouth, and it's like, whoa, man. <laughs> Where did that come from? But you already know the answer. It's like right, like a quarterback, like right before he snaps the ball, and boom, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And for so many Christians, because they don't feel it leading up to that moment, they never really actually pursue it. They never step foot on the field to actually run the play, and they end up, and here's the sad reality, they end up wasting their lives. So then how then do we wait for power? How do you do this? He tells them to wait in 1-4. How do you do this? At what point am I ready? That's a good question. We wait until we are sure that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, say that again? Absolutely. We wait until... We are sure that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I mean, that's Romans 1, 15 and 16. Do you believe that? Is the gospel the power of God until salvation? Do you believe that? You say yes. Are you sure? Like it is, either it is or it isn't. Are you sure that it is? 
We wait until that we are sure that the word of the cross of Christ is the power of God. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 124. Do you, do you believe that? You say, yes. Are you sure you believe that? That the word of the cross is the power of God? Are you sure? We wait until we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our lives when we put our confidence not in ourselves. And that's a temptation, right? That power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in our lives when we put our confidence not in ourselves, not in our life circumstances. Because, oh, by the way, those same life circumstances the devil often uses to create or even justify those personal exceptions of why we can't, even though he says that he can by his power, and you will be my witnesses. So, I'll tell you, Christians, we should, we can and we should, pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Do you do that? Do you pray, God, help me? We should, we can, and then obey the command to go and actually be the witness. Uh, The power of the Holy Spirit is latent, that is existing, but concealed, in every single believer. Because the gospel is believed and the Holy Spirit is present. But the experience of the power, the experience of the power that Jesus speaks of in verse 8, it will only come when we seek it with all of our heart and actually open our mouths in witness. And some of you may be like, well, this is really hard because I've never actually gotten a glimpse of this. And yet you may have never gotten a glimpse of this power because you've never actually hiked the ball. You've you've never actually stepped out in faith to obey God in his call to be his witness. Like, it it would surprise me not to learn that someone has never experienced this who has never shared their faith or ever talked to anyone about Jesus. Because a lot of these examples in Acts is literally like right when they're about to open their mouth and boom, power, boom, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit for this God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministry that is before them. So here's our challenge. Here it is. Our challenge is that we might seek the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? To reach people who don't know Jesus or who are not walking with Him. That, uh has a lot of practical applications here in the South. Everybody's a Christian, right? And yet so few people actually bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So few people love his bride, the church, like they ought to. So yeah, our challenge that we might seek the power of the Holy Spirit to reach these people, the ones that are unsaved, the ones who have maybe, like the prodigal son, walked away. That is, let us seek to make the passion of the Holy Spirit the passion of our heart. I know you guys got a lot of passion, you got a different hobby, you got things you like, right? Pray, God, give me a passion. Give me the same passion that your Spirit has for reaching the lost. And that's, that's my prayer. My prayer is that our passion would ever be increasingly so united with his passion and his heart 
It's my prayer. That we would have His passion. In a lost and dying world, I can't think of a better passion to have. So God, give us, Lord, give us an increased love for the world, for those who are dead in their sins. Give us power, God, to be a more effective witness in Lynchburg and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would not try to go it alone as Lone Ranger Christians, Lord, but that we would recognize and realize our need and our dependence on You and that You would give us a fresh filling of Your Spirit, Lord, for the God-ordained mission in front of us. Whether it's conversations, Lord, with a random stranger in Walmart or a co-worker or whoever it might be, Lord, may we be about your work. And it's scary. Oh, it's scary, Lord, which is all the more reason why we know that we can't, but that you can and that we need you, that we need you to empower us with this extraordinary power for those moments, Lord, Lord, help us to live in obedience to your commands, Jesus. We pray this in your name.